0: I hope that on this Monday morning, you um, you are able to do what I am able to do, and that is celebrate the sermon that you heard yesterday in your in the context of your local church um, or through your live stream of your local church. Um, and so, you know, yesterday morning, my husband and I logged on to the live stream account for our local congregation at GCC Nashville. I think it's dot org anyway, um, and participated in the live stream worship service, and one of our associate pastors, Josh uh, Hussong, um preached on, you know, the text that was next, right? So we, uh, we follow a, an expository model of preaching at our um, in our congregation, and so what was up next was uh, the lead-off verses of Romans chapter 5. And if you need a good sermon on suffering, which I know sounds crazy— But if you need a good sermon on suffering, I just—I've never heard one better. I have—I mean, and I'm—you know—and I'm old, and I've heard a lot of sermons. Um, So uh, here's one of the things Josh said yesterday. Well, first of all, Romans five one to eleven is about justification. Like it establishes like the therefore any passage of scripture that begins with a therefore you have to ask yourself what what's the therefore therefore. So when you ask yourself at the opening of Romans chapter 5, you know, which leads off with the word therefore, you you ask yourself what's the therefore, therefore, and you have to go back and you have to be reminded um, of what justification is and what it means. And justification changes everything. Uh, Justification is about salvation. And so when Romans chapter 5 opens with these words, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, you have to stop because there's not just a therefore, there's a since like because of. So therefore, because we have been, uh, since we have been justified by faith. So you have to stop right there and you have to ask yourself, is that true of me? Because I can't really read any further. Does it make any sense to read any further if I haven't been justified? By faith. In what? In who? Well, in Jesus. Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of god not only that we rejoice in our sufferings and that's where you know the this becomes a sermon about suffering i'm just telling you if you if you need a good sermon on suffering which we all do um i, I just i've never heard one better than i heard yesterday um gccnashville.org uh, josh hussong preached it yesterday hats off my brother and my friend my pastor um Essentially, here's the uh, here's the here's the bottom line. Suffering's not unique to Christians, but Christians do suffer in unique ways. We have a unique perspective on suffering. First of all, we suffer with the fullness of the presence of God because we are justified, because God is present, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, um, and we suffer purposefully. Uh, suffering is productive. Christians know this. The world does not. And we do not suffer as those who have no hope. We suffer differently because our perspective on our suffering is influenced in every way, shape, and form by the fact that we are redeemed. Through through the fact that we are justified, we are saved. Our perspective is different on suffering. Yes, we suffer. We suffer. There's no doubt about that. Um, also really uh, encourage you to read Romans Five 1 through 11 in conversation with Romans 818 to 30 uh, in order that you too would consider the sufferings of this present time as not even worthy of comparing with the glory revealed to us all right um, it would take uh, all hour to uh, to repreach the sermon so we're going to let it go right there um, where in the word are you today absolutely encourage you to be in the word of God before you get out there into the world that God so loves but we are going to turn our attention now uh, it, equipped and empowered with the word. Toward the World, All Things COVID, up next with Dr. Zach Jenkins. We'll be right back. Hey, 98.6, it's good to have you back again. Oh, hey, 98.6. Dr. Zach Jenkins back with us again today. I, there's so many like, cool things that I could say about Zach. Um, and so I did finally, I think, figure out why your Twitter handle is at Farm D Hiker. I got the hiker part now. I, have, uh, I figured out that's your, that's your passion. You love to get out there. And Glacier National Park, also one of my absolute lifelong favorite places to visit um, farm I got cause, cause of, uh, a, a pharmacy practice. Um, I'm not, I'm still not super clear on the D <laughs> doctorate. Oh, see, see, that's, <laughs> so that's super helpful. Cause here's the, here's the reality. Even when I'm reading your educational credentials, I don't know what farm D means. So I don't know that that means you have a, do- I mean, I know that you have a doctorate, but now I know as I read that, what that D is. <laughs> So there you go. There's some there's some numbskulls out here who um, do not. We don't know the code, dude. So there you go. Oh, yeah. oh, well, thank you. Okay, fancy pants. Um, smarty, smarty man. Um, <laughs> CDC guidance continues to evolve. I was reading just this morning. Uh, CDC guidance continuing to involve evolve in terms of like they don't even think people need to have a second test because apparently maybe a bunch of people are no longer infectious ten days after they have symptoms, but you and I are going to talk about CDC guidelines continuing to evolve for school reopenings. Talk with us about kids and COVID.
2: So that's a great topic. Uh, My wife is a third grade teacher, so I have an even closer familiarity with uh, all that is going on related to that. Um, Really, what we're starting to find out is that apparently kids are not as effective at spreading the virus as adults. That's at least where the data is kind of pointing right now. But That is for children under the age of 10. So the evidence that we currently have suggests that those above 10 spread it more similar to adults, so you can't quite separate them the same way. The other thing that uh, we're starting to realize, too, as some of these other countries have been uh, reintegrating children into schools, is that when you have children and adults back together, there was a lot of concern that you may actually increase the amount of adults that are infected That work around those children. And what they've really seen is that the rates of infection with adults are very similar to when children were not present. And the only thing that really increased were the number of infections in children. Now, that wasn't anything dramatic uh, as far as how how many children were infected. But what I think this kind of helps us know is that if kids go back, the adults aren't necessarily going to get very sick as a result either. Um, Another really important thing. So with the kids, we, all, we also know that uh, they typically exhibit less severe infection. Um, so it's pretty rare that they, they actually would end up requiring hospitalization in, in comparison to adults because children tend to be a little bit more resilient. So if you kind of lump all of that together, what that really tells me is that kids can probably safely go back to schools so long as we're really being very strategic about how that looks.
0: All right, I read one really cool article at the end of last week. Um, For those of you who are listening and you're saying to yourself, hey, schools in our community are not reopening um, for in person education. Our church wants to do something. I read an article at the end of last week about churches that are reopening for social distance uh, learning for public school kids in their communities um, who need a safe place to go and sit all day when they would ordinarily be in school. Um, It will be what I would describe as lightly supervised. Um, Kids will have social distancing because church campuses are so large, um, and they will have, you know, Wi-Fi availability to tune into what's going on that is provided by their local school system. So just encourage people to think creatively about how your church can serve your local community in the midst of all of this if you happen to live in a place where public schools are not reopening. Um, Zach, let's talk about one more topic before we have to go to a break, and that's dealing with long-term side effects of COVID. Are we far enough into us, into this that we know what some of the long-term side effects are going to be?
2: Well, I, I think we, we have a an idea of what some of those things may manifest as. What we can't really say for sure is how long some of this will persist. Um, so some of the things that, that have happened, there, there are individuals who had COVID and they didn't necessarily have very severe cases. Um, But, you know, they did struggle with breathing and whatnot when they had COVID. Well, some of those people that have recovered, we're actually still seeing them get winded in an unusual sense, like they'll go up a flight of stairs and they maybe they were uh, very athletic before, but they'll go up a flight of stairs and every so often when they go up that flight of stairs, they just kind of get inexplicably winded. And it's something that they they aren't necessarily used to. Um, We've seen other cases where people have kind of like almost a brain fog about them where they all of, sudden, all of a sudden will really struggle with lots of information or solving complex problems in a time-efficient manner. Uh, we have people that have had weakness. Um, we have people that have been very tired. So if you kind of lump all that up, it, we think it all may be related to the issues involving oxygen supply during COVID.
0: Okay. I'll just admit to you, the COVID brain or the brain fog thing would make me crazy. I feel like.
2: Oh, right. That, that, I mean,
0: wouldn't that be frustrating, right? <laughs> for the for those of us who uh, who sort of bank on uh, on being able to access random bits of data and talk about it on the fly, that that would be hard. That would be really hard.
2: That'd be a struggle for me.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, Doctor Zach Jenkins and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Our next topic is herd immunity. I, know, I don't really like to think of myself as a part of a herd, but I recognize that I am. That conversation up right after the break. We'll be right back. Oh, my oh, Continue my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins. You can follow him on Twitter at FarmDHiker, which I have now discovered means... Well, stands for the fact that he has a doctorate in pharmacy and he likes to hike. There you go. I know. So so you're more clever than the rest of us. Okay. um, Let's talk about herd immunity. Remind us what herd immunity is and then um, whether or not it's going to last or if it's ever even really going to exist.
2: So the whole idea behind herd immunity is that if, if a certain portion of a population of people are infected with something and develop immunity to it, it'll end up sort of shielding the rest of the population that hasn't developed that immunity. So it, it, it's kind of like almost a secondary immunity that they have just just by proxy, just by association. Um, that the concern that we have related to COVID, though, is we don't really know how long immunity persists in general. And we also can't really say for sure how long it would take for a up- given population to really develop that herd immunity and there are few reasons for it so one of it one of which is our different populations as we look across the world are spread out in different proportions so if you look at some countries that are very densely packed they may achieve herd immunity more quickly and especially in those more urban areas but in some of the areas that are a little bit more rural which we could look to parts of the united states as a good example it may take a much longer period of time for people to achieve herd immunity so it's kind of all at a different point in time in the race to achieve that. Um, the struggle is if we look at some of the examples in the world, like Sweden, where they didn't necessarily um, do a lot of the social distancing measures early on, uh, what we really saw over there, or, or excuse me, what we've really seen over there is they haven't really been as successful as they thought they would be with achieving that herd immunity. It's apparently taking a lot longer than they thought. So, that, that that's a, that's an issue with, with herd immunity. The other issue is there are a lot of health consequences. You know, we just talked about the problem with uh, people having persistent issues after they've had COVID, even with the mild cases. And so the concern is that if we try to really push towards herd immunity as being kind of our, our way out of this, so to speak, we have a lot of other consequences to deal with, not just the death thing, which I've never been as concerned with, to be honest with you. But it's all the consequences that kind of come from the disease.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about your your particular concern right now. Um, t- just share with us. I mean, you know, where are you now? Maybe that you weren't last week or a month ago on this topic.
2: Well, I, I mean, I, I think realistically, death, death is certainly something to be concerned about. It, it's not my chief concern. In contrast to, I think, early on when we weren't really sure what was going to happen with the virus. Um, really, what we know what we know now is that. In the United States, we've learned how to deal with it better. So we've seen the case fatality rate drop, um, especially as we've been testing more and we've seen where our fatalities are. If you really do compare us year over year to where we've been in the past, though, we've seen lots of excess deaths. So it is without a doubt a problem. But what what I actually see more of in my practice is really just all of these people that really struggle with these health issues long term and even in the short term. So the blood clots, um, the the trouble breathing and all those other things that we've talked about, it, it's in the short term they have that and then long term they have consequences from it. And that, that I think is probably the biggest toll of the virus itself.
0: Continuing my conversation uh, with Dr. Zach Jenkins. He serves at Cedarville University. He also serves on the very front lines of uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic as a healthcare provider, um, tell us what's going on just in your healthcare space and how that has changed. I mean, we 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 hear about ten thousand people hospitalized in Texas right now. That sounds like a really uh, crazy number of people, but to be hospitalized, you know, in in relationship to one thing. Have you seen um, the census rise? You know, in your hospital, are you you know are you feeling what is being you know talked about in the headline news?
2: So in uh, Ohio, especially Southwest Ohio, we really had our worst incidents back in May, I'd say, late April, early May. Since then, we've really just only had a steady trickle of COVID patients. So we're not quite in the same boat that we were. Um, what What's changed, I think, for us is really how we approach managing those patients. So early on, we were just kind of taking shots in the dark and trying to guess the best way through those situations made some mistakes on the way trying to think through that, but uh, really where we're at now is we have treatments that we understand do work. I think one of the struggles we have is there are a lot of drug shortages. Um, there are There's also a limited supply of other drugs that uh, there's no hope of getting anymore until they can produce more. So some, some shortages are occurring because people are kind of hoarding and stocking things up to deal with this, and other shortages are, uh, in the case of like remdesivir, we just don't have enough product worldwide.
0: Mm. Okay, um, Zach. Let's talk about one more uh, one more big headlo- headline news topic, um, and that is face mask mandates. Remind us what you told us last week. How many, if if everybody in America wore a face mask for how long, we would actually get completely over the coronavirus because it would not be transmitted, and therefore it would die.
2: Um. So so really, I don't think. I guess to your last point, I don't think we'll see the virus go away on its own. Um, Really uh, one of the problems we have with the virus is as far as immunity goes. We know that coronaviruses in general, immunity maybe lasts about three years, Mm. roughly speaking. And so I don't think there's going to be long term immunity, at least from natural sources that we would think of. Um, But it's hard to say for sure because this is a different virus still. Thinking about face masks themselves, I mean, if two people wear masks, we know transmission decreases anywhere from 70 to 90 percent. And so if you kind of multiply that in mass, you can imagine what kind of impact that would mean on the rate of transmission, um, especially when you add all those different other protective measures that people can do together. So that's where there's a lot of utility. I, and right now, I think that's really pushed a lot of states towards doing some of the mask mandates, Um think think last I checked, it's about 64 or 65 percent of the, the country now has some kind of mask mandate in place. Um, so so I, I think it's, it's helpful. Um, I wish I wouldn't have taken a mandate. This is probably the best way I could put that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that people have just done it voluntarily because we love our neighbors. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what you're thinking yeah. there. Yeah. Um, uh hey, what this was a curious experience that I had um just because I follow a particular friend on Twitter and um he was posting pictures of this uh you know, this little baseball team, little tiny little people playing baseball, hilarious, you know, like T ball age level, nobody's wearing masks, tons of people involved. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? And then in his stream he uh he reminded us all Everybody on that team was COVID positive very early on. And so they're not, they're they're playing together and they're not wearing masks. Ta- that is a different experience than, you huh. know, those of us still still seeking to sort of protect ourselves against it. Kind of crazy, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: I don't know. It's just something I hadn't thought about before. Like we're going to get to the stage where a lot of people will have had it. A lot of families will have had it. And they're going to be over a hump that the rest of us are still sort of like eyeing on the horizon.
2: Well, that's at least what we hope for. And and this is a piece where I wish we had more data and we don't. But there are case reports in some of the um, Asian countries and European countries that had some of the virus before we did, where they're actually seeing reinfection in some cases. Now, it's not a Mm. significant portion of their population as far as we know. But that's kind of the million dollar question is, you know, if you get this, are you going to get it again? What's the likelihood of that? And, And we don't really have a good answer to that at this point in time. (laughs)
0: There might be some Petri dishes out there right now. (laughs) Uh, All right, Dr. Zach Jenkins, as always, it's a joy to talk with you. Thank you for your willingness to just continue this conversation. Um, We're going to keep doing this until we we are all successfully over it, whatever that means. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, We'll be right back. Lots of headlines related to uh, politics. We try to bring those into focus in ways that are meaningful, um, and we try to examine the political conversations that are happening today in light of the gospel. And so Dr. Adam Carrington will be with me in just a moment. We are now less than 100 days from the 2020 election here in the United States of America. We're going to talk about convention cancellations. We're going to talk about uh, protests and riots across the country. Um, and frankly, we're going to talk about the return of baseball because it's political as well. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I
1: have a lot of parents tell me that anger is common in their home. It seems like every conversation with the teen ends in yelling or slam doors. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Anger is an emotional response to not getting what you want. When your daughter gets angry... What is it that she's not getting that she craves? Though many moms and dads see anger as an obstacle to healthy relationships at home, I think it can sometimes be the first step in the right direction to much needed transformation. Being disrespectful and physically aggressive are wrong, but you can look beyond the symptoms to what's really going on in the child's heart. Don't rescue your teen from anger, but help her find the source. Mark Gregson is hosting a virtual Families in Crisis retreat on Zoom the weekend beginning Thursday night, July 30th. To register, go to FamilyCrisisRetreat.com.
0: Dr. Adam Carrington. You can find him at Hillsdale College. He also tweets at Carrington AM. I think about what we do right now as the uh, A1 portion of the political headlines, and then we're going to turn to the sports page. How's that sound?
1: That sounds like a lot of fun to me.
0: Totally fun. Okay, so we're less than 100 days from the 2020 election. Uh, Let's start with convention cancellations and what I'll just call campaign strategies designed for one of two people to. get to an electoral majority
1: sure uh, well one one interesting thing will be that it looks like there for the first time in a very long time there'll be no actual in-person conventions. Uh, if anything, there might be some uh, equivalent of infomercials uh, put out by both campaigns uh, to try to do what uh, the main thing that conventions do now, which is pitch in, in a long form to the American people why you should support uh, their candidate and their party. Uh, that's a long way, by the way, from what conventions used to do. They used to be much more about actually picking the candidate uh, picking the platform, and I think this is going to be part of the longer term question. Uh, a lot of this election is i think really going to hang on what uh, uh, what the state of our country is in relation to the coronavirus in the fall, and even maybe even more so what what 's people 's perception of it, regardless of what the reality is and uh, you know the president is very much trying to i think um, back, you know, move away from uh, uh, the perception that's built that he's not been uh, 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 as involved or as concerned or as uh, proactive as he should have been on this. Uh, At the same time, um, I think at some point, President, uh, Vice President, former Vice President Biden who's really been sort of fading into the background on purpose uh, is going to be challenged when when people start really paying attention to the campaign and what water debates going to look like based on that. I think uh, yeah, you, you're really going to have to see whose strengths get played to in the fall, as we now sit about 100 days out and and given how un predictable things have been. Uh, It it really is hard to see uh, how how this back and forth is going to play out when the traditional tools of campaigning seem off the table.
0: We probably don't have time to till all of this soil today, but at some point, Adam, we should do like a primer on parties, party platforms, policies that grow out of party platforms, versus sort of the American perception of political parties, because I think there's a huge disconnect there.
1: Uh, absolutely. And the role of political parties has changed. I mean, uh, we, I, I, I'd be happy to talk about this even longer at some point, but uh, the short, the really short version is uh, parties were formed as a way of building a national um, uh, uh, coalition that was moderate, that was constitutional but that uh, expressed its differences with the rest of the country. And through it, you picked candidates, uh, you uh, set up a platform that said, this is who we are and why you should support us. And in many ways, the rest of the candidates uh, were, were defined by the party. And what's interesting is through a lot of changes I won't go into now, in some ways, candidates now define the party in a way that I think make parties less stable and and less able to do their job the way they used to. And in some ways, that makes us, I think, as the American people, underestimate the good that political parties can bring about. Instead, we tend to focus on the negative. I think there are some really good things it's done in our history. And if we understood that better, I think we'd be even more supportive of them rather than, I think, the low opinion many people have of them at the current time.
0: All right. I'm going to jump from expressly election politics <clears throat> to one of the things that results as an outcome of elections, and that is who ends up on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court uh, issued a ruling that I feel fairly confident everyone listening has not heard about. Um, talk about the, the decision, the 5-4 ruling of the Supreme Court um, related to church reopenings.
1: So this is another in that series of cases, and this one came out of Nevada. Trying to a church trying to increase what was a a ceiling of fifty people in a service that that Nevada had, and um and, and what was interesting it was it was two things that that we've talked about a little bit before, but it's interesting how these are developing. One, it was five to four again with uh, Justice Roberts joining the Democratic appointees. And by the way, this wasn't a fully decided case. They didn't hear briefs and all that. They just uh, rejected hearing it uh, on a fast track. But that basically means, you know, Nevada wins. Uh, the second thing is it brought up another thing we had talked about before, which is um, how how do you make sure you're at least treating religion equally to other entities because one thing that was noted by the dissenters and there were several dissents by Justices Alito and Gorsuch and others um is they said look at what Nevada is keeping open uh gambling facilities and 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 uh, certain restaurants and at one and, and is that fair that that it seems that these entities are getting uh, more preferential treatment than religious entities, and 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 Justice Alito on one hand said, you know, I don't see anything in the Constitution about the right to gamble. I do see about the right to free exercise of religion. And Justice Gorsuch, who probably had the most pithy line, said, uh, 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 you know, uh, there's a difference. Uh, we we protect uh, church, not Caesar's palace, and mm. it's 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 interesting. That, uh, you know, I thought there were some reasonable reasons when the California decision came out that was similar about some of the distinctions they were making. But you now start to have to ask, uh, when is a majority of the court going to actually see a a religion as being treated differently? Are they ever going to uh, uh, allow for that? And what does that mean for future cases involving religious liberty? So that's why I think that these kind of cases are are important. And it's important to watch as new ones come up, because at some point, the court either is never going to do going to protect uh, uh, this element of the right to worship, or uh, at some point they're going to have to take a case and actually uh, uh, fully, fully decide upon it. And this seems a little disconcerting based on on the trend we're seeing.
0: So, I remember Adam um, when those of us who are concerned about religious liberty um, focused in on a a clear change of language that was being promoted, particularly by Democrats. Um, it started in my in my experience, It started with Hillary Clinton uh, beginning to use the phrase "freedom of worship," and it was echoed then by uh, Barack Obama. Um, uh, freedom of worship, freedom of worship, as if that's what the Constitution says. And that's not what the Constitution says. It guarantees, you know, a right of the full expression uh, or freedom of my religion. And so um, this is an interesting distinction uh, for me, because maybe we do have the freedom of religion, but not the freedom to worship. (laughs) Like, right? I mean, it's an interesting, you know, in a, in a, or to worship in a particular way at a particular time in a particular space. Maybe the government views itself as being able to govern that because of public health concerns versus, you know, being able to say, hey, well, you have the freedom to, uh, to do so, just not in these particular ways. I just think that there's a robust conversation ahead in this particular area um, of what the Constitution says and how it's lived out, uh, you know, by we the people.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think one thing to keep in mind as well, your your distinction is really interesting because and the way that uh, Hillary Clinton or, or President Obama had articulated that was to actually give very robust protections to the right to worship, but not wanting it to spill out into other elements. And, and we all know that, especially for Christianity, but also for the other major religions that most people hold in the United States, um, Uh, the, The free exercise of religion isn't what you do on on Saturday, Sunday or even Friday when you go to a house of worship. It is a lived life. Uh, it is uh something that defines who you are and 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 defines your eternity and uh it 's interesting that uh, uh you know in these times we 're debating what can be done for the freedom of worship itself, but uh in the larger battlefield, I think um, we have to ask ourselves uh does uh does uh do current officials understand what religion is and what it means for people 's lives? Uh, the way the Constitution did? And is this uh, even attempt to curb uh, certain aspects of worship uh, indicative of a broader misunderstanding of what religion even is, and therefore what it demands of the people who who really believe that, uh, as we do, that, you know, in the case of Christianity, that this is the truth, uh, with a capital T? Uh,
0: absolutely. That is the larger conversation, and um, thank you for articulating it. In a far superior way. I just genuinely appreciate that. Um, so, we're going to talk uh, after the break about um, protests and riots, and we're going to talk about the role of the federal government um, when these are normally state and local uh, issues. So, that conversation is up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. If you Google the word protest and or the word riot, you're going to uh, see news headlines from across the country. Um, Dr. Adam Carrington, can you give us a comment on the uh, the way federal agents are now being used um, in cities across the country and remind us a little bit about why federalism is important?
1: Right. And and, and there's obviously a serious problem in, in a number of our cities that we haven't seen since the late 1960s of, of rioting and And the damage that 's doing to other people 's lives and property. Um, But what we what we're having is a fairly expansive sending in of federal agents, many who are not necessarily trained to do riot control. Uh, And the law uh, basically says you can send federal agents in to protect federal property, like a Social Security Administration building, a federal courthouse. And that's ostensibly what they're being sent in for. But uh, a lot of the practice is to send them in. And do and basically then act as a uh, backup police for the local law enforcement and uh, the, the The problem with that is not that we don 't want to give as much help to state officials as possible, but um, lo- local law enforcement has traditionally been a a concern of the states and concern of localities. And the idea is they are better and why that federalism provision is important is they are better able to assess the situation. They're better able to know what's going on locally and they're more connected to the people of the area to better enforce policing. And it's part of the broader why federalism is important that. The more that that local issues being addressed by local government is a better secure freedom than necessarily a one size fits all uh, of following. So the 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 uh, the uh, the idea of wanting to help local law enforcement, I think, is a very good one that the president and federal agents are talking about. Uh, It's a little questionable how far we should take that the use of federal forces at the local level, if we really believe the federalism is good for some of the reasons I just mentioned.
0: All right, I want to turn to the sports page um, and talk about baseball. It was the first time that our television has been turned on in months. Why? Because we wanted something that helped us feel normal. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> and, that's all I and got. Similar, Yeah, yeah, no, no. Sim similarly, and I thought uh, uh, President Trump was asked about that, and 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 he, I think, rightly said psychologically, um, the 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 having a major sport back on is going to be a real way to to, to bring some normalcy back to to, to us. And I think we've underestimated sometimes we you know, I know people and I, I live in, in the academic life. And so this is over represented where I am, uh, who who I think look down too much on sports as being sort of vulgar and and not the life of the mind and some of the things I, I see. And I, I really think that's all wrong. I think uh, baseball in particular, above all the other sports, uh, I'm biased on that. But even all sports. um they're so good at creating a sense of community at creating a sense of belonging at crossing generational divides um at at uh, uh showcasing human excellence uh at, at doing a bunch a, a bunch of things that we Uh, I think have really missed uh, as those things have been gone and that have really undermined our ability to have community together, our ability to teach and learn about some of the great values that help us in other aspects of life. So, uh, you know, obviously bringing sports back, you've got to be safe, you've got to be careful, but I think we've underestimated how much we have missed not having uh, sports and baseball in particular America's game with us uh, on a regular basis.
0: Okay. I do have a new hero, sports hero. I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but he's number 76 of the Kansas city chiefs and he's a guard. And um, he's, I, I, I gotta, I I'm going to have to learn how to say his name because he's just announced that he is foregoing the, the season um, he's taking that, that opt-out that they've offered to players. Why? Because he's a frontline orderly in Montreal and he does not want to leave um, his, you know, his teammates there who are serving on the front lines of, of the COVID epidemic um, without the assistance that he uniquely provides because he's so big and able to pick people up and move them around. I'm telling that... you, I, I, I know, I know. Like, I, I have goosebumps even just talking about him.
1: Well, and that reminds me of uh, of uh, uh, even uh, the greater sacrifice of Pat Tillman, who yes. gave up a uh, and, and not to dismiss this one. I, I both are both are saying that uh, while I just was saying how important sports is and can be, um, uh, devotion to the health of others and to your country um, in some ways are higher goods that sports itself points toward. I mean, I, I, you could say that. Uh, the I I wonder how much in his life and both both those men's lives the concept of team Mm -hmm. and being part of a team uh, is an incubator for patriotism, and I think the right kind of patriotism, a, a self-sacrificing patriotism that sees uh, your good and the common good of others and the common preservation of others. So, no, that—that's that, I, I hope that's actually an exception to sports that proves the rule, uh, that maybe that's what was taught him you know, on the playing fields.
0: I right know. I'm just kind of excited. I'm going to do more research, and I feel like people are going to uh, teach me how to speak enough French that I can pronounce his name. I'm I, I not even going to try because I'll just be. totally butcher it. I know. I'm just going to say Kansas City Chief number 76 until I uh, <clears throat> until I do, do some greater learning on that subject. All right, Adam, I love talking with you. It's fun to survey the headlines. Um, and thank you for bringing the gospel to bear on baseball today. Um, that's awesome. Thank you for all that you're doing each and every day and for joining us here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Delightful. We'll be right back. All right. um, Maybe I will uh, spend one minute talking about uh, one image that I found particularly redemptive yesterday because as rioters are raging um, across the country in many uh, American cities, I don't want you to miss this one truly redemptive image that was captured over the weekend as John Lewis's flag draped coffin was saluted by Alabama state troopers um, as he made this one last trip across the famous uh, Pettus Bridge. In Selma, Alabama, um, his blood was spilled there 55 years ago by Alabama state troopers um, while he was seeking to advance the civil rights of this country. And and I just want to say this is what you know to, to see those law enforcement officers lined up on that bridge yesterday, saluting um, as his casket uh, passed by in a horse-drawn carriage. Um, red. Rose petals strewn across the bridge. You know, to to remember the blood spilt there. That's what redemption looks like in the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we aspire to liberty and justice for all, in the spirit of a living God. Um, and so, you know, I'm not equating John Lewis with the Savior. I'm saying there's a redemptive image that you can point to and talk about. There's a redemptive image there that you can point to and talk about today. Um, all right, we w- we got a whole another hour up next. A whole another hour. of Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back.